0: Welcome to ScrubCast where we discuss the latest advancements coming out of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today we're speaking with Dr. Varya Kirchner. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kirchner.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Dr. Kirchner is an associate professor in the division of abdominal transplantation. Why did you choose to specialize in transplant?
1: Well, it's a very good question and very related to this particular podcast. In medical school, I always wanted to do hematology, oncology, and then thought the of surgery. And then during my surgical rotation, my first case that I ever scrubbed in, I met my first mentor in my life and... It was Dr. David Sutherland, uh, who was doing total pancreatic to my auto eyelid transplant. Oh, that was wow. my first case. I loved working with him. I really found this procedure very cool. I found the patient population cool, and I just fell in love with surgery. And since he was a transplant,er I said I'm going to go into
0: transplant. I love it. Well, so that is the impetus for me inviting you on the show today. Um, your new chief. Dr. Mark Melcher recently invited me to observe a new procedure that we're doing here at Stanford called the autologous islet cell transplant. Oh. Islet for everyone out there is spelled I-S-L-E-T, like the tropical island, not E-Y-E, like the fabric. Dr. Kirchner, can you tell everyone what an islet cell is and why they're important?
1: So islets actually are a combination of cells, and this is in a majority of it is endocrine cells that produce uh, certain hormones. We know it because of the insulin and the beta cells in the islet Produce insulin. However, there are other cells that produce, for example, glucagon, the hormone that counteracts the action of the insulin and responds only when the sugars are low in the body. Insulin obviously increases in the body when there is a very high levels of sugar, and usually in patients who are diabetic and have a very high sugar levels, there is not sufficient insulin, so they have to take the uh, uh, external or insulin.
0: Got it. But in this particular instance, we're talking about removing an organ and rather than replacing it with an organ from somebody else, we're removing the patient's unhappy pancreas. Then we're extracting its islet cells and then we're re-implanting them back, just the cells, not the pancreas, into the same patient.
1: Correct. There are two types of islet transplantation. Okay. There is one that's called aloe where you actually transplant islets from pancreas from a different donor, oh, from a donor okay. to okay. the patient who is diabetic. That's a different right. indication. Okay. So this is auto islet transplant. Mm-hmm. And we do it for patients who have chronic pancreatitis or acute recurrent pancreatitis. And if anybody is familiar with this, it's a disease that's really signified by very severe pain. And that pain, for people who have chronic pancreatitis, that pain never goes away. Unfortunately, it affects the quality of life. Some of them cannot hold a job because they have to constantly go into the hospital or be at home because they're just not capable of uh, controlling their pain. A number of those patients require quite a bit of pain medications in order to manage the pain. And unfortunately, pancreatitis, it's in addition to causing pain it causes also burnout of that gland of the pancreas and the subsequent complications are malabsorption because pancreas also produces digestive enzymes as well as development of diabetes because you burn out those islets eventually but when the gland is very inflamed it can make patients very sick and cause inflammatory reaction and organ failure throughout the body and uh, some patients end up in ICU on dialysis and multi-organ failure. It's a disease that has a wide range of presentations, but this particular patient population has a problem with pain. And if this pain is not controlled with medical or endoscopic management, this is when the surgery is considered.
0: Got it. Well, so you're re-implanting the patient's own cells in the auto, so Right. That, does that mean there's no risk of rejection? absolutely right so we take the pancreas out of the patient
1: to pretty much get rid of their pain right but then they become really diabetic so this is when we digest the pancreas and it's an enzymatic as well as the mechanical digestion of the organ that takes about four to six hours and then we infuse the islets back into the patient and it's an auto transplant mm-hmm. so in theory there's no immune response because the patient's own cells. There are some exceptions to that. First of all, some of the inflammatory reaction when we infuse those islets have similar pathways as some of the rejection, but it's minimal compared to actually infusing islets from someone else. So this reaction called immediate inflammatory reaction mm-hmm. to the islets and they can be destroyed. Again, we have a methods of controlling it or decreasing the injury to those islets. And the other very, very rare event is when patients have actually antibodies to their own pancreas and Mm -hmm. islets, and then that actually over time can still destroy the islets that were infused. But majority of patients do not have a severe reaction to infusion of their own islets.
0: I mean, this just sounds kind of unbelievable. We're pretty sure it works. I mean, how did you learn to do this? <laughs> yeah, so it depends. I mean, that's a good
1: question. It, it works. And in fact, so Dr. Sutherland is the one who actually invented the procedure wow. in 1970s. And so you
0: learned from the originator?
1: I learned from originator. The, initially, the idea was to developing this procedure is actually to develop minimally invasive treatments for patients with diabetes Mm. and transplantation of islets from donors. Mm -hmm. But in order to understand better the procedure and islet biology, they eliminated the aloe, the immune, the immune response portion of it by using patient's own eyelids in the setting of chronic pancreatitis. So it definitely works and the islets actually go into the portal system and they get seated usually in the liver and they find their own home in the liver. So the success of the, this particular part of the procedure, which is the insulin independence mm-hmm. and uh, good glycemic control, will depend on amount of islets that are being infused, the size of the islets. So the more islets, the better and at at the higher levels which is about 5000 islet per kilogram uh, roughly 70% of patients will be insulin free at 3 at
0: 3 wow. years
2: so it definitely works yeah
0: wow well, so, and then you brought this procedure to Stanford tell me about that this cannot be an easy process
1: Before even I came to Stanford, uh, Stanford was planning on developing this program. So there is a huge team actually of professionals, multidisciplinary professionals from research and clinical fields. They've been working on the program. I joined this team when I came to Stanford and I was lucky that Stanford already had so many resources. So in a collaboration with multiple physicians, uh, including Walter Park, Brandon Visser, uh, Marina bassina uh, Vita Kor, Alex Vesidius, we were able to perform this procedure, but you have to also know that all the supporting members of our team, including Naoko, who is one of our nurse practitioners, as well as our research team in the Diabetes Center, who've been very helpful. So I think the main point is that it takes the whole village. It's not one person's kind of invention or achievement. And I'm very thankful for our amazing team.
0: We are fortunate enough to have a few members of the team join us on the show, including Dr. Brendan Visser, a professor in the Division of General Surgery. Welcome.
3: Howdy, thank you for inviting me.
0: Dr. Visser, you specialize in HPB surgery, so no stranger to the pancreas, but how did you become part of this transplantation program?
3: Well, I've been working for a number of years with Dr. Walter Park in gastroenterology, who's a pancreatologist, a medical pancreatologist, And we have a clinic that is the benign pancreas clinic. So he and I see a lot of patients who have acute and chronic pancreatitis and approach them from our respective specialties. And as an HPB surgeon, I do a lot of cancer surgery, but I also do benign pancreas surgery, including operating on folks with pancreatitis. A number of those patients have chronic pancreatitis, and some of them are are good targets for other surgical interventions to relieve symptoms. So there's a subset of patients with pancreatitis that have stones blocking their pancreatic duct and a large pancreatic duct. And in those patients, for example, you can open up that pancreatic duct and drain the pancreas. So there are patients where surgical tools assist them in their quality of life, preservation of pancreas tissue, etc. but there's a subset of patients that uh, up. Until this program, we really didn't have a great opportunity to help at Stanford. We'd control their symptoms and help them sort of struggle along. But they didn't have a surgical target, and we don't have a lot of medical interventions for bad chronic pancreatitis. And so Dr. Park really led the charge, but we'd been working for a number of years to develop a, a, an eyelid cell transplant program. The patients who are candidates for transplantation are a little bit different than the patients who are Hmm. candidates for other surgical interventions. But for those patients, it can really be life-changing. And so it was an exciting development that after a lot of hard work by so many members of the team, we were able to bring into fruition.
0: Fantastic. So how is this surgery different from a regular pancreatectomy?
3: These operations can be pretty hard, difficult. I mean, the great bulk of pancreas operations are for tumors of one kind or another, whether they are are pre-malignant tumors or, or frankly malignant tumors. And while tumors cause changes in the pancreas that make the organ potentially unfriendly, patients who've had chronic inflammation, that can be a very difficult operation. The pancreas has gone through cycles of inflammation and recovery. And that cycle of inflammation and then healing essentially scars the pancreas in place. It glues it to the adjacent blood vessels. It pulls in other organs like the stomach or the colon around it and sort of Grabs hold of them. So, all patients who need operations for chronic pancreatitis, you kind of have to chisel the pancreas out. So, that is in one aspect is a little different. They can be quite tricky mm-hmm. operations and require a lot of experience in that regard. We also do them slightly differently than we do tumor operations because we want to take the organ out, uh, preserving the islet cells. So, we want to mm-hmm. preserve while we're freeing the organ from the adjacent anatomy. We also need to preserve its blood flow until the very last moment so that we have a short time of sort of warm ischemia. Um, So Mm -hmm. we do it in a slightly different sequence than a regular pancreatectomy. But truthfully, all the the experience and skills that one develops from many, many pancreatectomies for tumors apply to making this operation safer and easier.
0: Awesome. Well, I know you just saw our second patient for a follow-up a few weeks ago. What is the recovery like?
3: So there's a few different elements to the recovery. So in some sense, the recovery can be similar to patients who require pancreatectomies for tumors. They have an abdominal incision, and there is a period of mm-hmm. the body adapting to that and transitioning from the sort of pain medicines that we use in a hospital setting to the pain medicines you use for a week or two at home to then you know, transitioning off of any pain medicines. And so that's a little bit uncomfortable for a couple of weeks. Mm. But these patients have a little bit different recovery because we are, we are treating a deep chronic discomfort and sometimes intermittent spikes of real pain that are, originate from their pancreatitis itself. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the patients we've operated on thus far, and in fact, all patients we operate on with chronic pancreatitis, they can almost always distinguish the two kinds of pain And so they will often wake up and say, ah, the pancreas pain is so much better, even though I now have this incisional pain. And so (laughs) there's a nice trade-off that they actually, and and the deep-seated sort of internal pancreatitis Mm -hmm. pain is often really much more debilitating and and, uh, difficult for them than the incisional pain, which is fortunately also transient. So both patients thus far will tell you that it's been a terrific trade-off. And, and even with the, the recovery, the physical recovery required from surgery, then that they feel much better after surgery than they had felt before. These patients also are adjusting now to the adaptation to having lost their pancreas. Right. So, you know, their, their insulin function is altered from what it had been before, mm-hmm. even though patients in, who are getting operations for this typically have some degree of diabetes in advance. The way that's managed is a little bit different now uh, for them. So they're also kind of learning the ropes with their new um, diabetes requirements and, and following them very carefully to make sure that they're on top of them. And there's obviously some adjustment in terms of the digestion that they're adapting to. Again, mm-hmm. patients who are getting total pancreatic chemies, uh, for chronic pancreatitis have almost always been on pancreatic enzymes in advance of surgery. So that's not mm-hmm. new to them. But their, their plumbing has been altered a little bit. And the, the new plumbing is kind of settling in, as is true of anybody who gets abdominal surgery.
0: For sure. Awesome. Well, anything else that you would like to add before we start talking to our IR friends?
3: You know, this is a, a huge team effort. It requires a great deal of coordination. Um, you know, the operation is, is sort of just the beginning of the, of the whole journey for these little cells. Yeah. Um, and then and to get them processed and safely and then reinfused, and then to really tightly manage these patients in the recovery period to help these little islets find in their new home, get adapted, and start to function is, is really a huge team effort. And um, it has been a heavy lift to start this program, but we're very excited at what it's going to offer our patients.
0: Definitely, very exciting stuff. Thank you so much for talking to us.
3: Awesome, thank you.
0: Well, the only thing I like more than intra-departmental collaboration is inter-departmental collaboration. Please join me in welcoming two of Stanford's interventional radiologists to the show, Doctors Avi Thakur and Alex Veseridis. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, so we're Surgery Podcast, Radiology, to me, is usually a CT scan of the abdomen. How did you get interested in autologous islet transplant?
4: Yeah, well, thanks, Rachel, for, for that question. So, you know, radiology is actually divided into two divisions. You know, one of our divisions is our diagnostic radiologists who report um, the scans, like you mentioned, you know, from CT, MR, ultrasound. And we have another branch, which are interventional radiologists, which actually perform minimally invasive procedures. And it was interesting because I was doing islet transplantation when I was training up in Vancouver in 2013, I think. And when I got recruited to Stanford, I saw that you know nobody was doing islet transplantation here. Um, and kind of started the endeavor to kind of galvanize a team and bring together people with, with, a, with an interest in this field to um, try and bring ILEC transplantation to Stanford and um, it's uh, very humbling to kind of see many years later you know how the team has grown and the interest has grown and finally that we've done the first patient um, here at Stanford um, and it's uh, it's an incredibly as I said humbling moment um, and it's been a real privilege to work with um, everyone here both within the department that's supported us through this endeavor um, right from the previous chairman who really did help um, push us through um, Professor Gambier to so my partners here like Alex um, you know, who's been an absolute pleasure to work with um, to do the transplant.
0: Dr. Kirchner talked about how the pancreas is removed and then the islet cells are implanted back into the patient but I'm finding it really difficult to imagine this part of the procedure. Can you describe how you're getting the islet cells from the pancreas and then how you're getting them back into the patient.
2: Great question, uh, Rachel. Um, so uh, yeah, Dr. Krishner and her colleague, um, Dr. Visser, they um, take the pancreas out surgically uh, on one day, the day before we do the implantation. And then they kind of like clean up the pancreas and remove any extra components or pieces of tissue
0: Yes, I saw her doing that with her fellow in the OR. That was very cool. Yeah. It always looks a little bit like a craft project. Yeah,
2: a lot of arts and crafts.
0: But then it got put into a box, and I never saw it again.
2: Yes, so so it got put into the box, and then um, they took it to actually San Jose Airport, uh, and then it, it got on a private jet, and then it was, um, it was sent to Baylor uh, University uh, in Texas. Um, and uh, they... Um, did a digest uh, of the pancreas there. So they injected it with some enzymatic uh, solution. And um, in a few hours, they were able to break it apart from being a whole pancreas uh, into its constituent cells. And then they load it in a bag, uh, and then they ship the bag back to us the next morning. We prepare by bringing the patient back to us in interventional radiology, and we access their portal vein uh, through their liver and through the skin. Uh, we do that using ultrasound guidance uh, we place a small catheter uh, into the main portal vein um, and we confirm its location using an x-ray and then we inject the cells back in um, and we we actually have to like agitate the cells to make sure that they don't clump um, and then they find a, a new home in the liver and then we um, we just take the catheter out and we close the tracts while we inject the cells we do monitor the pressure uh in the portal vein to make sure it doesn't increase very much and then you know if it did increase there could be some other sites that we place the cells um for instance in the abdomen.
0: wow so i mean this they just had a really big open procedure but this sounds incredibly minimally invasive like maybe you're putting in a couple of stitches at most
2: actually yeah we don't put any stitches in um we do close the track not
0: any stitches no (laughs) how do you close the track super glue um
2: well actually that that's a good that's a good point. You could probably use super glue or a, a surgical super glue, but we actually use a foam plug made out of gelatin. Huh? Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah.
0: Well, so how long does this whole procedure take and how long does it take before the patient starts making their insulin again?
4: Yeah. So our procedure is not too long. It takes us about, I would say, up to two hours from start to finish to infuse the new cells into their new home. And then... Technically, the cells start working pretty much immediately, but that's not the whole story because what we've done is we've taken the cells from one home, i.e., the pancreas, and we've put them into a new home, which is the liver, and they kind of don't like being there.
0: Oh,
4: yeah, so they poor cells exactly the poor It's Like they went off to college and
0: they have to get used to their new dorm room.
4: That's right, and it's not a pleasant. There's no more cooking from mum anymore. They have to kind of fight for themselves, essentially. And unfortunately, some of them just don't survive. Mm. And in fact, it's actually interesting, up to 60% of the islets that we inject will not survive the process. Mm. And so that's quite interesting, because, you know, if if we were to say the same thing about a a solid organ transplant, and say, every organ transplant, or every kidney or liver, only 40% would survive, it wouldn't be a successful program.
0: That would
4: now work. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, but on the islet side, it's been interesting because whilst we have found a home for them in the liver, you know, we can actually do a lot more. I think to try and optimise that process so more of them can survive. And it's all a numbers game. You know, the more that survive, the more the body can sense the changes in glucose levels. And the better the insulin secretion will be, so the better the glucose regulation will be. So I think, you know, we have a solution, i.e. a a transplant, but I think there's a lot more that can be done to optimize this process.
0: Yeah, so this is all very cool, very futuristic science. Um, Where are you thinking you're going to go next with this idea?
4: Yeah, great question, Rachel. So, you know, in our lab here, which is called Iris, we actually focus a lot on optimizing islet transplantation. And what we're looking at is several approaches, but two of the most interesting ones is co-transplanting the islets with helper cells. There are a certain group of either stem cells or immune cells that can help protect the islets during the transplantation. Exactly. Yeah. So they have a little emotional support cell that will help them through the process until they can set up their new home. So we're, we're looking at those cells. So they're, they're called mesenchymal stem cells and their products that they secrete, their little goodie bags can help the islets engraft, set up a new blood supply and resist any attack on them. So we're, we're actually seeing very promising results with that. And then the second thing we're doing is actually creating new bio constructs. So these are new, what we call scaffolds. So they look like a lattice, like a sponge. Okay. And the sponge contains holes. And the holes then allow the eyelets to sit in. So then we're able to create like a little package where eyelets are seated. And then we can implant that package at different locations that we're exploring to provide a novel way for islets to engraft so we don't have to put them into the liver we actually load these constructs with different goodie bags you know mm-hmm. so one of the ones we're doing in, in in the lab is having a construct which makes oxygen so the islets can have some oxygen during their transplant um, another one we're doing is we're making little packages which contain nutrients so the islets can have mm-hmm. some food and this is important because like i mentioned to you before there we can't set up a blood supply to the islets, like a normal organ when we transplant. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: So for the first 14 days, you know, to 21 days, so the first two to three weeks, the islets have to survive on what they can kind of scramble from their surrounding environment that they're transplanted in.
0: Yeah.
4: Until they can recruit the new blood vessels into them that will then Mm -hmm. supply the rest of the goodies. So during that time, we're developing these, as you said, these these support packages that will Mm -hmm. last for about two weeks. Until they can establish their new blood supply.
0: Well, it has been super interesting learning about the interventional radiology side to autologous islet transplant. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you so much for having us. And, you know, again, like a, a big credit to all the team. It truly is a multidisciplinary team effort. We are just one small piece of the whole jigsaw. And hopefully, all of the pieces come together and, you know, the patients ultimately benefit at the end of the day.
0: We're going to return now to Dr. Varia Kirchner for one last question on this topic. For any patients or referring physicians listening, who is a candidate for an autologous islet cell transplant? What does your ideal patient look like?
1: So it's patients who have acute recurrent or chronic pancreatitis, who failed medical management as well as endoscopic management such as the ERCP, uh, who capable of managing Complex lifestyle after the operation because remember they have to still monitor their sugars because not everyone's going to be completely insulin free. Sometimes early on they require additional nutritional supplementation, and since a number of those patients have history of pain, it's also lots of work to actually winning we- off the pain medications. Of
0: course, yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah,
1: and in terms of the islet functional status, you don't necessarily have to be non-diabetic small amount of insulin dependence is still okay because the goal of this procedure not necessarily to make everybody diabetes free but what you're trying to avoid is to have a a severe diabetes with hypoglycemic unawareness awareness and severe complications so even if patients end up on a little small amount of insulin But with no pain and well-controlled sugars, I believe this is a success because you can't believe how many patients go back to work and go back to school and able to get their life back.
0: That definitely sounds like a win to me. We'll put information about how to contact your clinic in the description. I'd like to move now to our final set of questions that we ask each of our guests. First up, who is a surgeon you admire and why? I
1: was thinking about this question. I have three, I have to say that if it's okay. <laughs> okay. The first one, obviously, the person who created this operation and who really inspired me to go into surgery, to go into transplant. He was not only a fantastic clinician, he was a fantastic researcher, obviously, because he developed all this from the lab into, into clinical practice. And also most amazing, uh, generous, individual who shared his knowledge and always welcomed everyone. um, Dr. David Sutherland and my second uh, most admired surgeon is my mentor from residency and fellowship, Dr. Timothy Pruitt, he really inspired me to become a liver transplant surgeon. So again, I think he knew how to develop young individuals, both clinically, academically, and really knew how to find a common language with Everyone, everybody, and this was absolutely amazing. And the last one is the uh, Professor uh, Sanguin Lee, with whom I trained in South Korea and living donor liver transplantation. He is also innovator. He performed the first living donor liver transplant in South Korea and developed the largest center there, which performed over four hundred living donors a year. Uh, and again, um, extremely talented individual, but very generous, very kind, always help, keeps his doors open for every single individual who wants to come and learn from him. And, you know, there is never th- n- none of these guys have egos and is just despite their achievements. And it's just I, these are the people you want to actually portray and be like. So these are the three people that I,
0: surgeons I admire. Second question is, what is the best advice you have received in 10 words or less? It's funny
1: because my mentor, Dr. Timothy Prude, always would tell this to me when I get super upset. And recently I heard it again from my very good friend and mentor, Dr. Jill Helps. Uh, don't oh throw away baby with the, with the water, with the dirty water. <laughs> So and I think it's really true. I mean, sometimes you throw away very good things just because you're trying to get rid of something that's not as, <laughs> not as pleasant. So I think that uh, probably teaches you about the patience and about thinking actually the issues and things globally and try to see the best things and preserve the best things.
0: So What bathwater were you uh, trying to throw away here?
1: Oh, just, you know, some passionate discussions during the grant submissions time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I totally sympathize. Well, we are about out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last question. Now that you have this program underway and off to a great start, what is next on the timeline for Dr. Faria Kochner?
1: well i think that now we perform the first two uh, adult uh TPATs. we're working on developing our pediatric total pancreatectomy auto program because of although um uh one thing i probably didn't mention that the pancreatitis there's always been a stigmata that it's caused by you know um o- over excessive alcohol use but the reality is that now that we have a better testing, we realize that a lot of those patients actually have underlying genetic, uh, uh g- genetics that, uh, contributes to the pancreatitis or other conditions. So, and it's not only adults who can, uh, in fact, from the more recent data up to 60, 70% of patients that we evaluate have genetic predisposition. So, um, it's not only adults who can have this uh disease it's also kids and kids sometimes even at the age of one or two and nobody can diagnose and think of that how uncomfortable they are so the youngest i think that we CPIT that we performed at my former institution was at the age of three years old. So it's definitely rare uh, to do it uh, to perform surgery in such young uh, patients. But you just you have to be cognizant that children suffer the same way as adults do.
0: Definitely. Well, I look forward to seeing it come to LPCH. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It was really fun. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.